it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to the Situation in the Story podcast, where you can peer into what happens behind the page as I pick authors' brains about their experiences, their process, and their purpose. I'm your host, Chris Moore. Now, I know it's annoying, but I have to ask, will you please follow, subscribe, and most importantly, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you hear. As of now, this is a labor of love, but your feedback will help the show grow so that maybe someday I can quit my day job and continue bringing you the profound stories of writers from all over the world. As always, thank you for tuning in. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. my 10th episode, I sat down with Carrie L. O'Driscoll to talk about her memoir, Truth Has a Different Shape. Carrie is a writer and mother of two living in the Pacific Northwest. Her work has appeared in print anthologies on mothering, reproductive rights, and cancer, as well as online in such outlets as Ms. Magazine, Parent Map, The Manifestation, and Helpline. She is the founder of The Self Project an organization whose goals are to help teenagers, teachers, and caregivers of teens recognize the unique challenges and amazing attributes of adolescents and to use mindfulness and nonviolent communication to build better relationships. You can find her at www.carrieodriscollwriter.com. So why do you write? Um, for me, writing is alchemy. Like I'm a very internal person and, um, and I have like this massive internal dialogue and the way that I can actually take all of those emotions and words that are swirling around in my body and not only make sense of them, but use them as sort of a positive force out in the world um, is by writing it. It's a, it's, it's just this sort of magical process. Like if I hadn't written this book, if I hadn't written all the essays and things that I'd written over the years, I probably would have exploded by now <laughs> because I think all of that stuff is it's energy. I mean, I'm sort of a science geek. I have um, a college degree in biology and I'm minor yeah. in history. I'm, I'm very much of the thought that, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. We can only transform it. Mm. And the beauty, I think, of being sentient beings is that we get to choose how we transform it. And so for me, writing is this 
with alchemy. It's this transformative process of how do I understand what I'm feeling? How do I harness that energy? How do I package it into something that I can then put out into the world and use to serve the collective? Yeah. So I think about that question a lot. Why do you write? Because I'm always asking writers, but yeah, that we must be similar because I think that's the, yours is the first answer where I'm like, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense to me like that, mm -hmm. that, but I wasn't able to articulate it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. So your <clears throat> memoir truth has a different shape came out early February. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, how would you describe it? You know, I mean, I think I would describe it as sort of my journey to understanding mothering, my journey to understanding what it means to not only be a mother, but to be mothered. Yeah. It's, it definitely um, is also sort of this exploration of what it means to really take care of someone else. Um, in the beginning, I definitely <laughs> had a much different idea of what it means to take care of someone else. And then um, by the end of the book, it's much more, I, I feel like I have a much more sort of profound um, philosophical way of looking at what it means to not only take care of someone else, but to take care of myself in a way that's meaningful and real, you know, transformative, actually. Right. It seemed like at some point you realized that taking care of things, of people, of children, of parents was like a way to quell your anxiety. But what I love about your growth is you didn't just try to throw out your caretaker. You transformed it into what I see as like a healthy and meaningful aspect of yourself, which is very difficult for me to do in my personal growth as someone that's very black and white, like this behavior is unhealthy, like get rid of it. So it was refreshing to see that. Was it a struggle? Were you ever like, I need to put this part of me to bed. I need to just. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I was very, I, I was a very black and white person um, for most of my life. I mean, I think people would have said, you know, oh, sh there goes that sort of type A. <laughs> perfection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the situation that I continued to be faced with over and over and over again is that caretaking is messy and loving other people is messy and loving ourselves is messy. And sometimes <laughs> it's a shit show. Oh, yeah. And you can choose to either be in it or not. And I tried to run away from it a couple times. I think that it's finding a way to to sit with that messiness. You know, I spent a, a great deal of my early caretaking just trying to make things not messy. How can yeah. I head things off? How can I anticipate what might be ugly? You know, how can I keep everything neat and tidy in its own little box. And, you know, if I go back to my science geek self, right, <laughs> the way of the, the way of matter is towards messy, like things become disorganized as a matter of course. And so if I, if I wanted to spend all of my time and energy doing whack-a-mole and trying to take care of everything, I was going to destroy myself. And I wasn't showing up for people in the way that I really wanted to show up for them. I needed to find a way to, to sit with that messiness, to be 
with that messiness to be okay with it and to know that I don't have to hold it all myself. Yeah. It sucks. It's so damn hard. Like there were days where, you know, once I started to have those realizations, there were days where I wanted to kind of get in a time machine and go back. <laughs> and before I'd had that revelation yeah. and go, no, no, I really can fix everything. Right. No, no, I can make sure that everything's okay. Cause, cause once I had that realization, it was simultaneously freeing and really fucking scary. Yeah. Your book is kind of divided into these three books. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and book two is about like your own entrance into motherhood and like how you're still living that I can, I can make everything perfect. I can uh, fix things. And you fell into a uh, depression. I struggle with depression and anxiety myself. And that's hard enough. I can't imagine having those episodes as a new mother. But ultimately, that kind of gave you it was kind of the road to that realization of like, I can't do this. I'll, I'm going to end up killing myself. What was that like? Um, I, that was probably the deepest, darkest period of my life. Yeah. Um, I was suicidal for quite a while. For me, depression was also a physical thing. It was very, very physical. I was exhausted. I was in physical pain a lot of the time. And I was certain that I couldn't do this. I, <laughs> I was, who put yeah. me in charge? Jesus, what were they thinking? You know, I'm a disaster. I do not deserve to be in charge of these beautiful human beings. It really was something that, that took me apart brick by brick until there, until I was just a pile of rubble and I couldn't see any way back. It was, you know, I, I started out really, really just trying to contain it as much as possible. I had so much shame around feeling the way that I was feeling. You know, I can remember thinking to myself, you have everything, right? You have this husband who's providing for you financially and he loves you. You have these beautiful children. You live in this part of the world where there's clean water and clean air and opportunities. You know, you have college degrees. Mm. You have, like, what do you have to be upset about? Mm -hmm. No, suck it up, you pathetic thing. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't right. talk myself out of it. You know, I had a couple really good friends that I finally was able to confide in that I just kind of took that leap of faith and said, yeah, Hey y'all, I'm not okay. <laughs> and I'm scared. And the beautiful thing was that they didn't flinch. And I think for me, that was the beginning of that revelation. You know, I don't know that they knew sort of consciously what they were doing, but ha yeah. having people in your life that don't flinch and that don't run and that say, all right, I'm, you know, I'm going to watch your kids today while you take a nap or let's take the dogs for a walk and get out into the world so that you can see that there's something beyond these walls that you live in. Right. You know, people who were willing to sort of help me hold some of what was so damn heavy. Right. Were the people that saved me. In fact, I said, um, I wrote an essay about it, um, about depression about a year ago. And I shared it with a girlfriend of mine who had been one of those people, one of the really key people. And she was shocked. She said, really? I did that. Right. <laughs> like, all I did was like, just show up. Yeah. And I was like, that's the point. Yeah. Like, that's the profound piece of this. Right. right? Especially when you're unmothered. Yeah. 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 And believing like I had, you know, believed my whole life 
that there was no such thing as unconditional love. That was a fairy tale, right? I mean, I believe the, the irony was as a mother, I believed that I had the capacity for unconditional love, but I didn't believe that there was anybody on the planet who could love me unconditionally. And so I thought that the only way that I was ever going to be loved and cared for was if I checked all the boxes, yeah. made sure that I looked really perfect and I did everything for everybody else. And so to have people show up for me when I was really a disaster yeah. and I wasn't good, any good to anybody was like, what is happening? <laughs> like, why would anybody give a shit about me right now? Right. But there were these other people, this friend of mine, Becky was like, that's just who she is. And so she was so, so blown away when I shared that essay with her and said, you know, you're the friend, like you're the person. Right. It saved my life. And she was like, I didn't do anything. <laughs> Yeah. And isn't it interesting how, you know, I can relate. I, I've spent my whole life like, you know, nobody's nobody's going to love me. Nobody's going to support me. You're, like you said, there's no such thing as unconditional love outside of what I can, the way that I right. can love others. But in this last fall, I, I was in a pretty deep depression and all it took was just asking. <laughs> and like, once you realize you can just ask. Yeah. And they're there. Like, I remember asking my good friend, Gina, like, I, I was like, I went to work one of the few days that I could get myself to work. And I was like, I can't drive myself home. I'm too depressed and anxious and I need help. And she drove me home and stayed with me. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a huge deal, but for someone that never asks, it was like life changing. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how hard it is to ask. I, I don't know. I don't know what we do to ourselves. I don't know what we do as a culture to teach ourselves from such a young age that that, that is weakness. Right. You know, that that is something to be vilified or mocked. Um, but man, I'm on a mission to try to change that as much as possible because we aren't human beings aren't designed to do this alone. We're not solitary creatures. You know, we're designed to be in relationship. We're designed to be in community. And I think, you know, it's so crazy that we make it so hard on ourselves by pretending mm -hmm. that we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps yeah. and we're going to solve all our own <laughs> problems because that's nonsense. Right. It's total nonsense. Yeah, I think there's, it's multifaceted, right? Like that's part of American culture and philosophy what this country was built on and then it's also like a, a subconscious message we pick up from unavailable or dismissive parents that kind of make us invisible so we believe we don't deserve it and then we build it up in our heads like you know you can't ask you can't ask you can't ask and then it ends up being really easy once you do so humans are silly <laughs> this is cool. And we create 99.9% .9 of our own problems. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about craft. You made what I and the people in my MFA program would call a risky decision of writing your memoir in first person present tense as a child, Yeah. Um, which I did as well. But I'm thinking about taking the summer to rewrite it and put it in past tense. Can you talk about your choice to do this? Why? Why did you write in present tense, you know, as a child and what was challenging about it? Yeah, um, I got a lot of feedback. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> about I, that. I'm... There were a lot of people that said, don't do this. Yep. It's crazy. I don't like it. Yep. You know, 
Um, I actually had um, an agent who shall remain nameless, who read the first portion of the book and had a pretty visceral reaction to it and said, this is never going to sell. Right. And you need to put it on a shelf and walk away right. and write something. Else. Yeah. For me, I think it's because of the way that, because of the structure of the book, and I don't want to give it away too much for people who haven't read it, but there is this, what I call sort of that spiral structure to it where, you know, you're with me during the evolution of my thinking. You're with me as the reader, as I keep circling back around to these concepts and ideas or find myself where right back where I was before, Yeah, except I'm not. Right. And I think that if I was going to hold on to that structure and that, because I also have a college degree in philosophy. So there's that. (laughs) I think if I was going to hold on to that structure that I, I had to, I had to bring the reader along in real time. I had to have them be with me. Um, I think it also was a way to really, like, I don't, I don't have lots and lots of memories from my childhood. The ones that I have, I have in exquisite crystalline detail. Yeah. Needed the reader to be with me in those moments. And so it felt like a much more impactful way to bring the reader along with me and have them understand my internal life as I was having those revelations. I do. That's that's how my brain works. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a writer, so I spend a great deal of time alone and I'm like (laughs) concocting all sorts of stuff in my head, literally all. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's, that's why I did it. And fortunately the publisher really, she really got it. She really understood it and she appreciated it. Um, and so there will be no Nana, Nana, Boo, Boo, I told you so. Because <laughs> everybody has their own thing. Yep. I have to say that devastated me for about a week. Um, I was, I was incredibly upset and sad and did all that, all those writer things we do where we go, am I an idiot? Yep. Am I a horrible writer? Yeah. Should I just go work at Burger King? Like, <laughs> Um, you know, but fortunately I had another friend who's a writer who said, nope, this is you. This is your voice. This is how it works. Keep going. There are lots of agents out there in the world. Yeah. (laughs) And I actually don't have one. So (laughs) I did this without an agent, which, you know, it worked out really well for me personally. I met, um, the Irish writer, Emir McBride, you know, she wrote a book called A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing from a child's perspective and, and ran into the same thing. You know, this you can't you can't sell this, you can't sell this. And she told me the book was right the way it was, and I was not gonna let go of let go of it. And eventually, you know, it became an award-winning book. I kind of I kind of write the first my book is also currently divided into three parts, and I also wrote the first part you know, from my perspective as a child, because yeah, I wanted the reader to feel along with me as a child, you know, what, you know, what trauma or (laughs) abandonment can feel like, but yeah, I get a lot of feedback too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I get it right. There's this portion of the writing world that is really, really consumed with marketability and who's going to read this. And, but I think Unfortunately, we underestimate other human beings' ability or willingness to go on a journey with yes. us. Yes. You know? 
I mean, the first person who ever wrote some crazy ass science fiction thing, you know, <laughs> did anybody think, oh my God, somebody's going to, everybody's going to read this and think you're a fucking idiot. Whatever you are, right. But good God, look at us now. Star Wars, Star Trek, Game of Thrones. Like, you know, it goes on and on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I felt the same way. There was this, like, I had a lot of people tell me too. Um, in fact, an editor who is also an author who I really, really love and I love her writing and I respect her. She said, it's too woo-woo. People aren't going to get this. You know, people don't, the mass market doesn't understand what holding space means. <sighs> people don't, people aren't talking about that. Um, and you also need to show, don't tell. And I was oh, like, God. I appreciate your <laughs> feedback. Thank you very much. And now I'm going to go write it this other way. Because first of all, if I took all of that advice from all of those people who were worried about marketability, this book would sound so contrived. Right. Right. I don't have a lot of memories from my childhood. If I started to do the show, don't tell thing, I mean, I could put in all sorts of, you know, I could go do a ton of research about, you know, what girls were wearing in the 1970s and, you know, I could go back to the town where I lived and, you know, walk around and none of that stuff is real. None of that stuff would come out of my head. Right. Right. That's all contrived. It's all, it would all be something that wouldn't sound like me because what was really happening in my head was the stuff that I have to tell you about. Yeah. The stuff I to show you. So the pieces, like I, you know, the editor said to me at one point, she said, you know, there's not much description of your mom in this book. Like there are some physical descriptions of your dad, but it's really hard to know like what your mom looked like. And she said, is there a way that we can add some of that in there? And I said, no, that was on purpose because for much of my life, my mom physically wasn't there. She was in another room. Right. Hiding under the covers. Um, or she was just gone. And so, and when she was there, I was so hyper-focused on making dinner or doing my sister's laundry or getting her dressed and off to school or, you know, I wasn't looking at my mom. Right. I wasn't paying attention to her because she was a non-entity. And so, no, I'm not going to describe her (laughs) and add a bunch of stuff because she wasn't there. Right. Yeah. I know how that is. In book two, you talk a lot about memory and how, how much it seemed like your mom put memories away or denied them or totally saw it completely differently from you. I love that you address that, um, especially in a memoir. Um, But I don't have a lot of memories either. There's like whole years of my life missing. Um, So I really wonder how did you handle mining memories, especially when there were so few? I know they were vivid, um, but did you interview people? I mean, it sounds like you couldn't really get accurate answers from mom. And my mom kind of does the same thing. It definitely was challenging for sure. I talked to my older brother um, a few times, you know, developmentally, we were in very, very different places during that time, right? I was eight, he was 11. So he's an adolescent. He's, you know, concerned things that were very different. And I think he experienced the loss of my dad in a much different way than I did. Right. Not only because of his age, but because of the gender. And, you know, my dad was this tough Marine, you know, we definitely had those gender roles, those very yeah. rigid gender roles in my family. So he was focused on very different things than I was. Mm-hmm. And he always sort of felt protective of my mom, but that never compelled him to actually do anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. Like, I don't expect him to have 
you know, stepped up and started cooking dinner or anything like that. Like it just, again, along gender lines, I think. And then also developmentally, right. He, as an adolescent was working towards like becoming independent. And I was frantic to just keep the last bits of my family together. Yeah. So I, I did talk to him, but that wasn't enormously helpful. Um, I also spoke to my dad's second wife, Susan, but again, her, I, I guess everybody that I talked to, what I learned was that memory is like what we make of it. Yeah. Like we all created our own memories. And in a lot of cases, we didn't get to choose which of those memories stuck with us and which ones didn't. I still am fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by why do I have some super mundane memories and then some also really strong ones. And then why did I suppress some memories? Um, but I think I, I had hoped at some point that once I remembered one thing, that there would be this cascade of, you know, this flood of things that would come back and that didn't happen. So I just wrote the things that I knew because the more that I tried to excavate and research, the more frustrated I became. And the more I realized that everybody else's experience was just different enough from mine that I couldn't write it. I had to write my own story. I had to own my own stuff. I don't get to write anybody else's story. So, um, yeah, there are big holes. Like, I don't remember. I'm certain at some point in my life I had birthday parties. I don't remember a single birthday party before I was 16 years old. I don't ever remember having a birthday party as a kid. Other people saw things in a very different way. I think that was sort of the beginning of where I started to, the very, very beginning, mm -hmm. where I started to have compassion for my mom, even as I was still really angry with her for denying a lot of the things yeah. that I knew. Yeah. It, I mean, I, you know, I remember the first time I ever heard the word gaslighting and somebody explained it to yeah. me, I was like, oh, that's my childhood. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, I totally get that. Right. But I also, you know, had, I guess because I had so few memories, I really wanted to fiercely, tenaciously hold on to the ones that I had. And so having my mom deny those things or um, try to explain them away in a completely different way, um, yeah. it really made me angry because I, it was like, this is all I have. And you can't tell me that this, this precious little thing that I have is wrong. Right. Or it doesn't exist like that. What? <laughs> yeah. It's enraging. The whole gaslighting thing. Um, did one thing I was super curious about through reading is what was your mom's upbringing? Like we didn't get a lot of info on that. And I was curious cause I like to see how patterns repeat themselves or, you know, different mm -hmm. causes of behavior. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so my mom was raised Catholic. Her parents were, you know, married forever. Um, they, she grew up in Southern California um, and she was the oldest of five kids. Um, 
And, you know, again, that's one of those things that's hard to know. Like I, the stories that my mom told versus the stories that maybe some of her siblings told, um, can be sort of critically different. Um, my mom's mom, my grandma was a school teacher. She was a fifth grade teacher and, um, she was a total tomboy, self-described tomboy. You know, she <laughs> loved baseball. The San Francisco Giants were like her obsession. Um, mm-hmm. She was always on the go, really fun. I, I don't know that I ever experienced her as being like super nurturing and, you know, warm in that kind of way. Um my mom's dad was just an absolute sweetheart. He was just the most amazing man. I adored him. Mm-hmm. According to my mom, um, there were many years, my grandmother had a back problem and she had a series of back surgeries. And according to my mom, there were some periods in there where her mom may or may not have gotten addicted to the painkillers. Mm. And then my mom was the one who was responsible for all of her younger siblings. So talk about patterns repeating themselves, right? Yeah. Um, Sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, and then if you look back even farther, I'm actually considering writing something about this for um, my next book um, because there is a pattern there. My great grandmother and her family escaped from the Ukraine in 1901 and came over to North Dakota. She was only two years old, but they, you know, brought her and, um, when she was old enough to marry, which was when she was 15 years old, um, (laughs) she got married and she, I believe was the oldest daughter, um, and moved out to what is now Springfield, Oregon. And they homesteaded. She had four daughters. Um, her husband died very young of a massive heart attack in the middle of the field. And, um, her oldest daughter, who is my mom's mom, my grandmother, I presume pitched in a great deal and helped. Um, so I do think there's a, this family pattern of the oldest daughter kind of taking over or taking on responsibility that maybe a kid shouldn't necessarily be taking on. I read a lot of memoirs by women, and it, it's been a long time since I read one that didn't tell of sexual abuse. How challenging was it to put that on the page? At the point that I wrote it, it was not really that challenging, sadly. I had known about my sister's sexual abuse for years before I remembered that it had happened to me. I had also, um, I worked for a while as a college student Um, I was a medical assistant in a family planning clinic near Portland, Oregon. And I saw, I mean, that was my life. (laughs) Honestly, I saw a lot of women and young girls who had been sexually abused. And so I had thought about it and heard about it and, and known about it in terms of other people for years and years. And so when it came to my realization of that it had happened to me, um, in a couple different ways. I mean, you know, not only when I was a young kid, but my mom's second husband, um, I alluded to that in, in the story as well. I think, I think that 
I went through a process that I think a lot of women my age go through, which is we knew that those things were happening to us, but we didn't have a way to talk about them. And we didn't have a recognition that they were in a lot of cases wrong or inappropriate. Like that was just the way we got treated. As a teenager, I worked in this you know, five-star resort as a hostess and a busser and a waitress. And I did room service and I was constantly harassed as a, as a joke, right. As this, right. by these, you know, by the cooks in the kitchen, um, the lewd remarks, the suggestive stuff. So I think for me, it, it wasn't a difficult thing to put on the page. It was a necessary thing to put on the page. Yeah. It took me a really long time to talk to certain people about it. I mean, when I told my mom about it she just was like nope didn't happen don't know what to tell you you're being dramatic get out of my face <laughs> yeah know? so that's that was the challenging piece but the putting it down on paper was um empowering it was this like i have agency i have a voice this did happen to me and i'm not gonna pretend it didn't that's powerful Gen X and Gen Y seem to have a capacity for change that our parents' generation doesn't. Like, we talked about how a lot of women talk about, like Aaron Carr talked about it in the last episode, and you talk about it in your book, when you had a baby, like, it changed everything. Like, you felt this love that you didn't know was possible, and of course you were going to not repeat the same patterns. Why do you think, to me, and maybe you disagree, to me it seems like that started maybe with your generation. <laughs> and why is that? Um, I mean, I think that every generation builds on the generation before. And mm. so it may be that my parents, who were baby boomers, you know, maybe their generation was fighting against the stereotypes of women in the workforce. You know, maybe mm -hmm. that was their thing. Like I know it wasn't necessarily revolutionary for my mom to go to college, um, especially because she chose to be a teacher and that mm -hmm. was one of the sort of accepted professions for right. women. Um, you know, I think that there were, I think they had other battles. I think, you know, it's, it's, one of those things like you, it's an evolution and we're all sort of, we have to use the steps that the people before us built in order right. to the next thing. So, so maybe it was that my generation, even though we were raised by these baby boomers who were emotionally stunted, <laughs> right? yeah. like literally, like we were not, yes. allowed, you know, there were like boys were allowed to have anger and happiness and express those things and girls were you know allowed to be quiet and, right but we weren't allowed to have anger and you know we could be joyous but we couldn't be loud about it i mean so maybe maybe that generation's gift to me as a woman was not even thinking twice about going to college and maybe wanting to become a physician or an astronaut or you know and then maybe my my generation's gift as women to our children is to not be emotionally stunted and to mm. leave space for our children to, to express themselves emotionally. I, I think 
that, you know, had my, had women of my mom's generation, I think there are a few of them that probably parented or tried to parent in that really sort of open, caring, emotionally accepting way. And they were all labeled hippies or, you know, nut jobs or, (laughs) you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think, you know, we... I think culturally we we have to take these certain steps before we can take other steps. Yeah. I hope sense. that it is progress. Oh, I, <laughs> I think <hope> so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um towards the end of your book you really dive into your relationships with your daughters and finding a balance of taking care and giving independence and giving them a space to be themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I never felt like I got a chance to be a kid when I was a kid. And when my kids were little, that's really, really what I wanted for them was for them to to just be able to be children, for them to be able to just experience mm-hmm. the thing that went along with that and to know that I had their back. Cause that was the other thing I never felt was that I never felt like there was an adult that had my back. And I, and as I got older, you know, I, I was constantly looking out for other people, right? I, my mom, I was kind of the container for her grief and, and her frustration and her inability to do certain things. And I, that, and so as my kids got older, I never wanted them to have to be that. It was like, there's, I think there's this fine line between letting my kids see me cry or grieve or be just full of rage and not expecting them to do anything about it or, fix, yeah. you know, like, yes, you can come give me a hug if, if there's something that I'm really upset or devastated about. And that's all, that's all I need from you. Yeah. That I'm feeling really crappy right now. And it's, please don't take this on. Yeah. Because that it's, it's too much. It's not, that's not the kind of relationship dynamic that I wanted to have with my kids. I, I want them, I don't want them to go out into the world holding their own baggage and mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, I've had to say really explicitly a few times, I appreciate you being here or, or witnessing this, whatever I'm going through. And I need you to know that if I need to lean on somebody for help, I have other, these other people that I'm going to lean on. So you don't have to take this on. Yeah. And I hope that they experience that as not only a gift, but sort of normal. I hope, I hope that that they don't ever feel like, you know, they need to race in and fix stuff. Right. You also write about your mother's Alzheimer's, which I have a little bit experience with my uncle got it. And uh, I was young, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't totally understand it. I knew it was frustrating and I knew it was sad. And sometimes I think about, you know, if this happens to my parents, how the hell is that going to feel? I mean, I can't imagine. I try to imagine she's still alive, you know? Yep. She and is. just doesn't remember you. No, she hasn't known who I am for probably three and a half years. Yeah. She's in an assisted living facility right now. So physically she's being really well taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think it was ridiculously frustrating for me, super selfishly when she started to lose her memories. Cause I had always hoped that maybe someday we could sit down and she would be honest with me. Maybe she'd lose her filter like old yeah. people, you know, and she'd yeah. tell me stuff 
that she'd literally been hiding from me my whole life. And, and now that it's gone, like that stuff is gone where she's actually nonverbal now. Um, so she couldn't tell me even if she wanted to. But as she descended farther and farther into herself, I was able to really find a great deal of compassion for her and come to this space of acceptance and really just learn how to meet her where she was instead of constantly holding that rage and anger and expectation of this is the kind of mother I wanted you to be. This is the kind of mother I needed you to be. And you kept not doing any of that. Even when I blatantly begged you to be, yeah. that, you couldn't be that person. Yeah. Um, but that was all work I had to do for myself because she didn't have the capacity to be the mom that I needed her to be. And what she did need was for me to care about her. And, you know, I think this was her worst fear. Her mom had early onset Alzheimer's mm. in her sixties as well and lived for 10 years with it. Um, my mom's on she nine is. years now. Damn. And it's not only expensive, ridiculously expensive, but it's, you know, you don't get, there's no quality of life. There's zero yeah. quality of life. And she would be absolutely furious if she had any understanding of the way that she's living right now she would be enraged hmm. which is really sad it's especially in the last 25 years was you know she was a very independent person she had a lot of ideas and wanted to do a lot of things and I think yeah she'd be pretty upset knowing that she's literally you know taken from bed to wheelchair fed by somebody else, dressed by somebody else, bathed yeah. by somebody else, back to bed at night. Yeah. That's so hard. And I know you carry some fear about your future with that being that it's in the genetics. Yeah, I do. Um, I joke about, you know, <laughs> when I was in college, I actually met the husband of Jack Kevorkian's first patient what yeah um in one of my ethics classes um he came and spoke to one of our ethics classes and um i mean i was what 19 or 20 years old and at that point i was like oh yeah sign me up <laughs> <laughs> like how where do i you know where do i get to the point where i tell people like this is what i want when i get right. to that point because i don't want to bankrupt my children i don't want to you know, force them. And I, and I don't want to be in that position. That's not who I am. I don't want right. to just be a body, but, um, you know, in the meantime, I'm doing all these things to hopefully stave all of that off, <laughs> getting enough sleep, not drinking alcohol, you know? <laughs> yeah. Good. Um, so what is next for you? Well, so the book came out officially February 4th, unless you, um, listen to Amazon who has held it until today. So, <laughs> Oh yeah, don't get me started. Um, yeah. so it, I'm doing an event. I'm doing, I'm hoping to do a series of events <clears throat> at this point. I'm, I have one in Seattle and one in Portland that I'm doing, but they're really, um, they're book launch slash consciousness raising. Right. So I'm partnering with artists and musicians and other writers in hmm. Seattle. We're going to do um, like 90 minutes worth of performances, spoken word and music. Um, and then there will be kind of a gallery walk. But it's really um, we're partnering with local nonprofits who are doing really, really cool, innovative work in our community. 
Um, so the event is called Alchemy, and it's about transforming our rage to serve the collective. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing that. It's, you know, they're free events, but we're selling books and art and um, the musicians are sharing their Spotify and, you know, Apple Music handles. But it's really just a way to like counter the narrative of, you know, the world is a horrible place and we're all going to hell in a handbasket instead saying we have this rage and this energy and we can use it and there are people currently out there in the world using it to transform the spaces where we live and work into places that are healthier and happier and better for all of us so that's march 23rd in seattle and then march 29th sophia shamiev is going to join me in portland we're going to do that in portland i'm hoping to do it in la this summer i want to do it all over the place but um you know, this is um small independent publisher means I pay for everything myself. Yep. <laughs> so, so we'll see how that works. And then I'm continuing to write. I have ideas for maybe two more books rattling around in my head right now. And I really prefer the writing piece to the marketing piece. Right. And then I have another organization that I started called the self project where I write about, mindfulness and nonviolent communication and social emotional health for teenagers, middle and high school kids. Yes. I can't um, wait to read that book. I, and I love that work. Teenagers are my absolute hands down favorite humans on the planet. I just (laughs) think they're amazing. People think I'm insane when I say, yeah, I'm like, bless your heart. (laughs) I love teenagers. I think that they're freaking amazing. And Um, And so I really want to increase that work. I want to do more. I I work with, I do workshops for parents around mindful parenting of teenagers and how you create relationship with them. I do some educator training. My, My big goal around that work is to create professional development opportunities where we have teachers and parents come Mm. together and they all learn together. You know, we have this sort of Venn diagram of instead of like, because I think the system we have right now is we pit the schools against the families like Mm -hmm. in the school domain. And this is in the family domain. And, you know, we're not going to take responsibility for that. And you need to do this. And, um, and I want to like bring everybody together so that all the adults are on the same page and the kids aren't hearing one thing when they go to school and something different when they go home and then yes. recreating and undoing each other's work constantly. Um, My school would benefit from that immensely. I just think the kids will benefit from it. I mean, I think, you know, if we can start to acknowledge what we do to kids and and the messages that we send them yeah then i think you know we can make a huge difference in their lives but but we're focused on i think a lot of the wrong things and we're putting energy into the wrong places so that i have a huge passion around that and i want to continue to do that work too but i'll never stop writing because writing is the you know like i said at the beginning it's my alchemy it's the yeah way that i that I transform all of my energy and put it out there into the world to serve the collective. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And I will see you at AWP if we don't all get sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm, um, I'm stocked up on Clorox wipes and elderberry and, um, I got my elderberry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Planning on, 
wiping down that tray table on the airplane about 16. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. No. Um, are you doing any panels at AWP? I'm not. I had signed up with a, where we had tried. There were a couple of people that we were going to do some panels, but they didn't get chosen, um, which is probably just as well. I'm actually bringing my 17-year-old daughter with me in one of her Yay. So nice. Um, we're and the weather looks like it's going to be nice. So yeah. we're hoping to, you know, find some. My daughter's a musician, and so we're hoping to maybe find some music and nice. some good barbecue and the um, river walk. Yeah, I've never been to San Antonio. Me so either. Yeah, um, me too. Yeah. Cool. So I have some panels I want to go see. I am signing my book there. Um, in the book fair on Thursday and then again on Saturday. So, um, and then I'm doing an offsite reading on Wednesday night um, with a bunch of poets, which is going to be fun. Nice. Um, So I have a few things planned, but you know, I'm a writer, so I'm kind of an introvert. So I'll like go out and be with people for 90 minutes or two hours. And then I'll be like, Oh dear God. (laughs) That's exactly how I was last year at at AWP. It's so funny because most of us are, it's like who decided we should get together thousands of us. Right. Exactly. (laughs) But I love it. And my daughter's an introvert too. So she will certainly be like texting me furiously. When are we leaving? Yeah. Are we leaving? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in. You can purchase uh, Carrie's work on Amazon.com. Until next time, keep reading.